0: Welcome to the Know Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey friends, I'm glad you joined us again. I know uh, for a long time we've only been airing Sunday morning reflections on the word, but uh, thought you might be happy to hear that here in a couple weeks. It looks like I'm going to be able to sit down and interview a couple members of the Lincoln Society here in Nowada who are preserving the cultural heritage of what was once uh, the segregated black school here in town. And um, they're going to be working with the uh, splash pad committee that I also serve on. Uh, because the splash pad's going to be over at the the park by the Lincoln Center. So anyway, just a fun intersection. Um, I don't know how much it's going to overlap with the gospel explicitly, but uh, Gary Gibson, whom I've prayed with and known for several years, he's a Christian brother, as well as Melva, who uh, uh, is going to be part of the interview as well. So uh, I'd imagine Jesus will be brought up a time or two. Anyway, that's something to look forward to. This podcast today is the time in the Word that we spent this last Sunday, and, um, you know, pretty great, (laughs) as Scripture always is. Um, I always focus more on the first reading. I don't know why, but um, we're having Paul's Road to Damascus experience from Acts chapter 9 covered, and um, that kind of sets up the theme that I, I kind of track through the rest of the scriptures, which is the Lord, when he calls us, he calls us to suffer. Um, and this comes from the the line in uh, chapter 9, verse 16, where it says, uh, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So we follow that theme through uh, Psalm 30 and um, the notion of being separated from God in death and how God doesn't even let death separate us from him and then we have uh, beatific vision from revelation where all of the creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth are praising the father and um and we talk about that being the direction that everything is headed in and then finally in the gospel reading we have the resurrected jesus um, in the gospel of john uh, making a meal for his disciples on the shore of um, the uh, sea of galilee and um, how he calls Peter to confess his his love for him, profess his love for him three times in order to to kind of cancel out the three times that he denied him, and, and what that means for us. And I ended on a a reflection that I didn't really anticipate having, but on uh, the nature of repentance and forgiveness, and how these things are tied to our own relationships with other people, and how odd it is that 12-step groups can expect folks to make amends with people they've harmed, and yet the church often doesn't make clear that that's um, important. So um, anyway, it was kind of, I, I intentionally ended on a somewhat in, uncomfortable note, and I hope hope it makes you uncomfortable, because I think it's something that should make us uncomfortable and that we don't think or talk about enough. So, Anyway, I, uh, I hope you're blessed by your time in the Word with us. And as always, I really appreciate the support and affection you give this church. God bless you. So, during the Christian Passover, uh, it's pretty customary that we don't do an Old Testament reading for the first reading. We'll read out of Acts of the Apostles because it's trying to get us built up and ready for Pentecost, which, of course, is 50 days after uh, the day of Easter, the, the Christian Passover. Um, that's the day when the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles and gave birth to what is God's kingdom on earth, otherwise known as the church. Anybody remember what the word church means? Assembly, good, yeah. Church is just those assembled in Christ Jesus' name. So we are a church. We are part of the church, uh, the the global assembly of all true believers in Christ Jesus. So today's reading is about Paul or Saul. Um, one of the things that uh, Sunday school did that kind of messed people up in America. We made this story up about how when Saul started following Jesus, God renamed him to Paul. That never actually happened. Saul and Paul are, are the same name. It's just one is the Jewish Aramaic version, and one is the Greco-Roman version. So whenever he was in mission out in the world, everybody was calling him Paul, because they were not Jews. His mission was to the Gentiles. Whenever he was among the Jews, he was Saul, but it's the same name. Now Saul, the way we first meet him in Acts of the Apostles is he is part of the crew rallying people up, uh, getting them excited to kill Stephen, who was the first martyr after Jesus. Stephen um, was, was a Christian believer who was very vocal in his faith, and for that, Saul and other uh, Jews who did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, hated him and other Christians and stoned him to death, if you're not familiar with that, that's where you throw stones at somebody so long, so many times, so hard, that eventually their, their head breaks open and, and they're no longer alive. It's a, it's a terrible way to go. Stephen is granted a beatific vision of God in, in his heavenly realm, and it's beautiful, but it, it's an ignominious end for him. So anyway, Saul is, is firmly established that he is right in persecuting the Christians. Up until now... There are no gentiles part of the church this is a jewish only movement and the jews have their scriptures they have their prophecies according to saul and people like him jesus does not fit the bill jesus cannot be the uh the messiah he was killed by people like saul who were so offended that he proclaimed himself the messiah that they killed him and now they're killing anyone who follows him uh saul has has mobilized all these jews to kill all these christ follower jews And the Christ-follower Jews are now scattering to different towns, one of which is Damascus. So, of course, the practical thing to do then is get your guys together and go to Damascus to crack some skulls. Okay, so that's what's going to happen here. But God has other plans, which we're going to hear about. Um, So I I forget. Joe, are you doing the first reading? Okay, then uh, let's have that.
1: Today's first reading comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9 verses 1 through 20, which you can find on page 1542 of your pure Bibles. Let's listen to the word of God. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the, with the disciples, which were at Damascus. And straight away he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: There's a lot of things to be said about this reading. Uh, we could preach the whole rest of the hour on it, and we're not going to. But um, any pastor worth their salt is going to give a sermon on uh, repentance and forgiveness from this, because think about who Saul is. I already gave the setup. He is directly responsible for the murder of God's own child, Stephen. Remember, when someone uh, is born again in the faith, they're justified, they receive the Holy Spirit, they're adopted into God's holy family, and Stephen was an adopted child of his. People like Saul killed God's only begotten son, Jesus. Saul himself directly contributed to the death of Stephen. He's a murderer of God's holy ones on on the earth. And yet, God sees fit to call this man to repentance, encounters him in a supernatural way, causes this repentance, and then calls him to lead a holy life and to be saved. And one of the scandals of the Christian faith is that on the day of the Lord, when the the saints are entering into heaven, some of the people they're gonna see are the very people who killed them and were later called to repentance. the sermon in this, the message in this that we all need to understand is God only ever calls sinners to repentance. And all of us need to remember that we were once dead in our sins, so we don't get haughty or cocky or confident. We also need to be able to look out at the people around us, a bunch of sinners, and see that God is calling them as well. Now, a lot of times when pastors say that, we just imagine the neighbor who's mostly a nice guy, but has just been living outside of the church for a bit. Or someone who's just young and they just don't know. But they're not thinking of the worst of the worst. You tell me. Do you think it's bad to be a habitual meth user or to kill one of the Lord's children? Which one's worse do you think? What? Murder and drug, dealing, drug doing are equal? Are you having a hard time with this? No. Murder is clearly worse. Okay. Is it worse? To kill one of the Lord's children or uh, to beat up your kid every now and again. What do you think? Murder. Murder is the worst, guys. You're killing somebody not just made in God's image but redeemed. But the thing is, we Christians, we get in our heads, oh, here's the sin I can't forgive. Oh, if somebody's a child abuser, I can't forgive them. If somebody beats their wife, I can't forgive them. If somebody molests a child, I can't forgive them. If somebody's a Democrat, can't forgive them. That was kind of a joke, but we got some hate. Um, We come up with our people that we really don't like, and the thing is, God ever said there is only one unforgivable sin. There's only one sin that's unforgivable, and if you haven't done that one, You can and shall be forgiven if it is God's will. And it's not the job of the church to go, oh, but you sin in this way, and we don't like people who sin in this way. You can't come in here. The Lord might be calling you, but we're not receiving. No. If we are a church of Jesus Christ, then we receive people that the Lord calls out of sin. And not just the nice, polite sins has one drink too many on Saturday night sometimes. We're not talking about easy sins like that. We're talking about, well, we are talking about that. We're also talking about a lot worse than that. Because God is glorified when people who are bad, bad, bad become good, good, good because they're in Jesus. But how powerful is our faith if we're only receiving those who do the the socially respectable, acknowledgeable sins? We got people out in this town that have done some nasty, nasty, bad stuff. Is the church going to let them experience God's grace or is the church going to stand between them and God? And I'll tell you, you've heard me from the pulpit really have a hard time. When somebody harms a child, I really, I have a lot of hate in my heart still about that. I have, you know, I have, whew. But I have to be clear, whenever I read scripture like this, God can and will save people out of that. And if I don't make room for that, then there's, Jesus said, um, he compared new people, people that he's calling to children. He said, if any of you would be a stumbling block to any of these little ones. It would be worse for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and you just be tossed into the sea. You ever thought about that one? Can you imagine what it's like to have something, a brick or something tied to you and you're trying to swim up and you're just done for. That's how the mob does it some, well, I don't know anything about the mob. I'm not gonna talk about it. Yeah, Jeffrey the mobster. Yeah, what'd you say Janice? I lived in Boston, yeah. I didn't hang out with the gangsters in Boston. So there's that. The other sermon that we just have to have every week, because we're living in a a culture of wealth and prosperity and comfort, is did, did did God call Saul? Yes. Was that a good thing for Saul? Yes. Was that a good thing for us? Yes. Yeah, he wrote down half the New Testament. It was great. But when God called him, he said in verse 16, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, Ananias, go, and I'm going to call him to wealth and health and prosperity. He's going to have a great life in my name. No, he says, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for me. Now, do you think Paul was happy to suffer for his Lord? Here's a good question. Are you and I happy to suffer for our Lord? We better be. That's one of the reasons the story is written the way that it is. Suffering is at the beginning, middle, and end of a relationship with Jesus. We, he didn't. Uh, Vodi Bakum, I was playing a sermon for him with my men's group this week. Uh, he was talking about men who decide they're just unhappy in their marriage. And, and he kind of puts them in a quarter, and then the man hypothetically says, But I just don't think my Lord wants me to be unhappy. And he says, Let me get this straight. Our God, whose only begotten Son, was broken and bent and cursed and maligned on the cross, but you, he wouldn't want unhappy, huh? Which is a pretty poignant point. For some reason, we think that Jesus alone has to suffer and that we who follow him, we can live in the high life. That is an odd impression to come away with. That is a cultural corruption of the gospel. That is not what we encounter in the Bible. The Bible says... Jesus suffered. Paul suffered. Peter suffered. Andrew, Nathaniel, all the way down, all of them suffered. Christians throughout history have all suffered. There is nothing unique about there are unique things about America, but it's not as though when Christianity entered our shores, suddenly suffering uh, left the faith behind. Suffering is part and parcel with the Christian faith. We have to just lean into that. Got to stop avoiding it. What else is to be said about this this reading? Let's just stick let's stick with the main point because that's going to be the theme throughout the rest of the who can and will God redeem. Let's just meditate on that the rest of our time together through our our psalm how powerful is God? Who can he save? Throughout revelation, why are we praising God like that? And then in John when we see the resurrected Jesus doing what he does. Let's carry this theme forward. So let's let's move on. Now let's um let's sing to the Holy Ghost number 603. Come Holy Ghost, our hearts inspire, um, and then, of course, this is getting us ready for Pentecost. All right, Psalm 30 is found on page 762 of your hymnals. And the sung response sounds like this. Could you play that D?
2: Sounds like this. For the night weeping may tarry with the morning light comes joy
0: all right let's sing that through once and then we'll read oh don't worry about it um let's sing a cappella then all right uh i'll sing it through once more and then you just sing it back to me okay me alone then you with me
2: for the night weeping may tarry With the morning light comes joy. All right, let's sing that together. For the night weeping may tarry. With the morning light comes joy. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have
0: lifted me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O oh Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol.
2: For the night weeping may tarry, with the morning light comes joy. Sing praises
0: to the Lord, O his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. By your favor, O Lord, you had established me as a strong mountain. You
2: did your face, I was for the night, weeping may tarry. With the morning light comes
0: joy. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, o Lord, be o Lord, be my you have turned my morning into dancing, You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul might praise you and not
2: be silent. For the night weeping may tarry, with the morning light comes joy.
0: Oh, Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life among those gone down to the pit. What is Sheol? I didn't hear that. What? Hell. Hades, the place of storing the dead people. So it's not just the Jews who believed in a storage place of the dead. It's all ancient cultures believed that when, when people died, even though their spirits or their bodies died, their spirits descended to a pit, uh, a low place, a place down in the earth where their souls were kept indefinitely in a place separate from the Lord, a place with the dust, right? What profit, look at verse eight, to you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? And the obvious answer there is, no dust can't praise the lord and people separated from god in the realm of the dead cannot praise the lord god don't you want people to praise you and the answer is yes and that is why god saves us from death hell and destruction and that's what the easter message is jesus is so powerful god raised him from the dead and the powers of hell death and destruction are now nothing they've been defeated they're they're now just on their their last last gasp jesus is stronger than those horses this is the Easter message you hear it every year and yet how many of us still fear death and yet how many of us still uh, are terrified of of dying in our bodies and our spirits being separated from the Lord now most people don't think in those terms most people think uh, the moment they die they're going to get their their halo and their wings and they're going to fly up to heaven one of the things that ancient Christians believed is that um, all the faithful of all the ages were down in this place called Sheol but that when Christ died, he descended to the realm of the dead and that he brought his Holy Spirit there and he either busted them out or he uh, had a hostile overtaking and now that he he is camped out in the realm of the dead, or he not personally, but his powers are now even in the realm of the dead. There is no place in heaven or on earth or under the earth that anyone can go and be separated from God. So whether or not you believe in that particular thing, one of the things we have to be clear on is and there is no room for disagreement on this our God is more powerful than death and hell. there is no discussion to be had if you if you want to argue that that death and hell are more powerful than God, you're not a believer it doesn't say if, it doesn't matter how much you say you love Jesus it doesn't matter how many hymns you sing. if you think that that death and hell are still something to be feared when you know the Lord you're wrong you're damnably wrong. Um, what we talked about last week, was that right fear, fear of the Lord, shuts down all other fears. When you learn to fear the Lord of the living and the dead, Yahweh is his name, Lord over heaven and earth, Lord in the highest heavens, El Shaddai, Lord of hosts. When you learn who he is and what he's about, you fear him. You don't fear fear hell. You don't fear death. Uh, All of your fears fall away, and you're left singing psalms like this one, where, God, you've only ever been faithful to me. And because you've saved me from death, I will praise your name forevermore. Isn't that a good psalm? Let's move on. Let's go to our third reading. Um, Laura's been worshiping with us for some time. And I don't want to make Laura emotional before she comes up here. But Laura had bad experiences with churches before this one. Um, And we're not faking it. And we're giving her a good experience. She's part of the women's discipleship group that we have on Wednesdays where you women are discipling her um she we uh, imposed on her to read uh scripture on good friday she did an amazing job so we wanted her to do it and then i also had her sit up here with me uh today partly so you can know who her face is but also we've got this space and we're just not using it it's empty space so from now on i mean it's okay when you're a reader if you want to sit out there but i also like readers if you ever want to come sit up here and uh it just i feel like my face gets boring you know and so it's good to have other faces up here so anyway i didn't I didn't want to make you uncomfortable before you came up, Laura, but Laura is going to be reading our our Revelation reading today. And I would just invite you, if you don't know who she is, shake her hand after worship and introduce yourself to her. Um, But let's pay attention to her reading.
3: Today's third reading comes from the book of Revelation. The chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, which you can find on page 1730 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him, that liveth forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. God.
0: So if you don't know who the uh, 4 and 20 elders are or the beasts, it's time for you to read Revelation. Um, those are characters that have already been introduced. You should know who they are. Uh, we should also know who the Lamb of God is. Who is that that they were praising? Jesus. Yeah, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Once again, if, if you encountered that and they're like, What's the lamb got to do with this? You need to read Revelation. You need to read your Bible. Uh, you need to understand symbolism like this. The moment you come to it, y'all at this point should be going, who doesn't know what the lamb is? You know, This this should be the air you breathe. This should be one of the things that you think of when you pray to Jesus, that he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, there is no, I mean, there's, there's a story throughout Revelation. This is just... A blip in the story that we encounter in Revelation. And Revelation is John the Revelator, probably the disciple that Jesus loved, John. He, uh, he's granted this beatific vision of the heavenly realms as they currently are right now, but also in the future. And I'm pretty sure that this is a vision of the future because here it says that not just all of heaven, first off, all of heaven, all the angels, the millions, myriads of angels are praising uh, God and the Lamb. But then, verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So this is all humans, all angels, all other creatures. Everyone is then praising the Father and the Lamb. Now, I don't think that can be the present because right now all of creation is in rebellion against God. Right? The biblical story is everything was in alignment, in union with God in the beginning. He created everything, and then there was a rebellion in in the heavens and on the earth. There was a heavenly figure, Satan, uh, the evil one, who turned against him, and then that corresponded with humans turning against him, and then all of creation fell into disarray and chaos. God sent Jesus to restore his kingdom on earth. Even so, the fullness of his kingdom has not been made known yet. We're told there's a future day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and all that is not in Christ will be wiped away. And it's at that point that you're going to have all the heavenly creatures Creatures on earth, creatures under the earth, all unified in praise with God. And it's this amazing vision that he's granted. That's what stands at the end of this whole story. That's what we're aiming at. And one of the biblical stories is that you and I were created to be and shall be restored to creatures as holy or holier than angels. And 1 Corinthians, Paul says, do you not know that in the future you and I will judge angels? You're not put in a position of judging creatures that are better than you. We were created to be God's imagers on earth, given spirits, not just spirits, but bodies that would reflect God's heavenly perfection. That's our destiny. That's what we were born to be. And the scandal of the church today is we don't even talk about achieving that level of holiness. We see our our job is sin management. We are not called to sin management. We are called to be holy as God is holy. By sin management, I mean People just carry the foregone conclusion, I have sin in my heart, it's never going away. I'm never going to get rid of it. I'm never going to be holy like an angel. I'm only ever just going to manage my sinful desires. That is the, the notion that most people have of their sins. It is not a biblical notion. The biblical notion is that our God is more powerful than our sin. If you don't get that from reading Romans, you're not reading Romans. You're not reading your Bible. If God is as powerful as the Bible says he is, then sin does not win out over me and you. And what's happening right now is something called sanctification, where you and I are going from glory to glory in the image of Christ Jesus. And if you're not engaged in that project, you are selling Jesus short. Once again, maybe a damnable offense. My job as a pastor here is to try and dress down the illusions of the world that you and I are bombarded with each week and to just let you hear with pure ears what the pure word of God says. And the pure word of God sets the hopes for humanity here where we are aligned with all heavenly creatures on earth, in heaven, under the earth and praise with God every bit as holy as they are. Who's headed there with me? We got three meek hands sort of come up i want you to be bold we were talking about being bold last week i talk about being bold all the time brothers and sisters we have got to be bold and that means not just being holy out there but being in here saying i'm gonna be holy i'm aiming at holiness with you my brothers and sisters i'm aiming to be with the angels in heaven for all eternity i'm aiming to be a perfect reflection of christ jesus in the world and if you're not willing to be bold and say that then you know what? I'm going to pray for you right now. Let's close our eyes. I'm going to pray for you. Father, there are a number of people in your church throughout the world who know that they should hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they know that they should be holier, but Lord, they do not have the biblical vision for how powerful you are and how much you can reform them. They're not hungering and thirsting for that level, and I pray, we pray, that you would give us that hunger and thirst, that you would help us to yearn for your holiness and to believe, Lord, that you can remake us in the image of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Amen. All right, our final reading uh, today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 19, which you can find on page 1525 of your Pew Bibles. Listen again to the Word of God. After these things, Jesus shewed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Does anybody else know what what other name? this sea has this this lake galilee yeah it's the exact same thing lake of galilee jews today call it galilee uh, lebanese above them who don't like the jews call it sea of tiberias it's one of these things people do all over the world they call it different things it's the same place sea of tiberias and on the wise on this wise should he himself there were together simon peter and thomas called didymus and nathanael of cana and galilee and the sons of zebedee and two other of his disciples Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it in for all the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. Uh, We're not going to preach on it, but it was normal for guys to fish naked. This is not a scandalous thing that he was running around naked on the ship, but it would have been scandalous if he was running up to Jesus naked. It's, uh, people did a lot more naked back in the day. Verse 8. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but as it were, two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, 150 and three, and for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Do you get the impression that he didn't look like himself here? If you're not getting that impression, you're not paying attention. He, this, if, they did, if he wasn't doing these miraculous signs, they would just think he was somebody else. The only way they know it's Jesus is because of what he's saying and what he's doing. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus shewed himself to his disciples. After that, he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Jesus saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yes, Lord, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. This is the word of the Lord. According to Christian legend, does anybody know how Peter was killed? Upside down in Rome, and uh, and I think the Colosseum, but I'm not I'm not sure about that. Crucified upside down. Here Jesus is saying, when you were young, you went and did what as you want, but now that you're living for me, as in your older years, you're going to be taken where you don't want to go. You're going to be crucified upside. It's a prophecy Jesus is making about Peter dying. I I think of Paul when he was called in Damascus. That story we just heard. How. God says, I'm going to show him how he's going to suffer for me. Right at the front end of this invitation to follow me is you're going to get killed for it. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the call of Christ is follow me and die. That's the call to discipleship, follow me and die. That's the call he issued to Paul. Paul followed, and he died. It's the call he issued to Peter. Peter followed. Peter died. Now, why is that not a sad story? Oh, it's a sad story? Why isn't it a sad story? Tell me. The resurrection. The resurrection. Were it not for the resurrection, you and I would be morons for following Jesus. You and I would be people most pitiable. We would be fools worthy of pity. But because of the resurrection, because of the bodily resurrection, because Christ's promises are sure, we look at these stories of Peter and Paul and the thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Christians who have been persecuted and killed for the faith, and we say, God is glorified. God is glorified. Now, let's, let, that's the end of the reading. The beginning of the reading had this story of Jesus appearing. They've been fishing all night. There is no fish in their net, he says. Throw it over to the other side, and they ca- catch so many fish they can't, can't bring it in. Is this a miracle? I would say so. There's a very similar story at the beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of Luke. This is how Jesus reveals who he is. To Simon Peter and Simon Peter whenever that happens he says Lord get out of my boat I'm not worthy to have you close it's quite a story here Jesus reveals who he is by this work of power so once again we're at this position of answering how powerful is our God and the answer is he has ultimate power this thing with the fish that's child's play that's easy but does Christ have power to save sinners In the Apostles' Creed, we we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And yet, how many of us really don't? You know, we take joy in thinking that God is just going to condemn everybody, that he's not going to save anybody. We're so big on God's justice that we forget about the grace component. God can and will save sinners. He has been doing it all along. He's going to do it some more. Now, Peter, let's think about Peter. Peter had just committed a great, awful sin, hadn't he? Because on the night of our Lord's uh, Passion... Three times he was accused of knowing Jesus, and three times he denied him. At one point, even swearing up and down, I do not know the man, he denied Jesus three times. This is a grievous sin. Jesus said, any of you who are, deny me or ashamed of me on him, I will be ashamed on the day of judgment. Right? What he has done is a big, bad deal. And what Jesus does here, hurts him and heals him. He says, do you love me? And each time Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Yay, yes, I love you. But Jesus keeps asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? The third time Peter is hurt, he says, Lord, you know my heart? You know that I love you. But after that third time of saying yes, he canceled out the three denials. Now, I don't mean to say that you and I, with our good deeds, can undo the bad deeds. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ that cancels out our sins. But even so... What Jesus does whenever he calls us is he gives us an opportunity to repent. Just like Saul on the road to Damascus gave an opportunity to repent. Just like Peter now, an opportunity to repent. A lot of Christians want to follow Jesus, but they don't want to get hurt. That's not an option. Not only does the world outside hurt us, Jesus himself will hurt us whenever we're trying to hold on to our own pride. And one of the things that I've been kind of, I was thinking about it last night we got people in our churches that we brought in that I know have sinned against other people. And the church is not required that they forgive or that they ask forgiveness from people that they've hurt. You know, it's and it's silly. Twelve-step programs can ask more of people than the church can ask of people. When you go through the 12-step program, one of the steps is make amends, right? Think of all the people you've wronged. You have to ask for their forgiveness. You have to acknowledge what you've done, ask forgiveness before you can move on to the next step. And yet the church, we don't do that. We just say, have you experienced something powerful with Jesus in your heart? Okay, well then welcome on in. doesn't matter who you've harmed out there. You don't have to r- repent towards them. Just say you're sorry for your sins and then come in. And I, let's just think about this together. I'm not going to change the rules to this church. Y'all, y'all are going to do what you're going to do. But wouldn't it make more sense if we really are sorry about the sins that we've done? That we say sorry not just to God, but to the people we've actually sinned against? Wouldn't that make sense? And yet we would rather say sorry to God than the people we've harmed. Isn't that weird? I just kind of want to sit on that for a little bit. I don't want to give you anything that makes you feel good about that. I want it to feel wrong in your spirit. Because Jesus himself says whenever you've wronged anybody... If you've been bringing your offering to the temple, just leave it right there because you've got to go back and you've got to get reconciliation with this person. You've got to apologize because if you're not right with other people, you can't be right with God. If you don't forgive other people, you can't experience forgiveness with God. Jesus says these, those things in very clear terms, and yet we so often choose to forget those words and continue to have brokenness between us and others and expect for things not to be broken between us and God, and that is, that is a fairy tale understanding of the faith if you want to be right with god you have to do everything within your ability to be right with other people and if you have harmed somebody if you have spoken nasty false things about them that's affected their relationships if you have been cruel and unfair to them if you have spoken lies if you have uh if you've stolen if you've used other people and you haven't asked for forgiveness then i don't know i don't know if god's going to forgive you i really don't I, I don't see anything in the scriptures indicating that if you refuse to ask for forgiveness for somebody else that god will forgive you anyway now the good news is if you ask for forgiveness from somebody and they refuse to give it that's as far as it goes god will forgive you i have no doubt in my mind you know if if i if i if I, if, if i'm just a bitter man and sarabeth comes to me she's done me wrong and i just say i don't forgive you She has done everything that the Lord has required of her. She will be forgiven by God, even if she has a spiteful, vengeful husband, resentful husband. But if she refuses to apologize, or let's change it now, I've wronged her, and I refuse to apologize to my wife, then God help me because I've just made a liar out of myself. I want to end end worship on this sour note because, well, that's incentive for you to stay and have communion because that, that, that always ends good. But there are sins that we carry in our lives that we really shouldn't feel good about. And I don't think it's my job as pastor to make you feel good about them. I think it's my job to make you uncomfortable. And if you have asked forgiveness from everybody, pat yourself on the back. You're doing what Jesus requires. But if you've continued to to kick the can on this going, ah, you know, maybe it'll just disappear. Do things just disappear? Unless they have amnesia. No, they don't. And even then, it hasn't disappeared for you. We, we apologize. We ask forgiveness, not just for their sake, but for ours. When we refuse to ask forgiveness, it damages us. Just like if I, if I stole money from somebody and I go and apologize later, but I don't have that money to give back to them, it's incomplete. We have to do our part, and that means if we've harmed anybody, we need to repent. We need to apologize. We need to do everything we can in our ability to make things right. And God, who sees in secret, will reward so anyway god forgive me if i've offered anything beyond the biblical text but at least carry this our relationship with other people affects our relationship with god here's here's the final reflection when when jesus appears to paul on the road to damascus he says jesus uh, paul why are there why are you persecuting me was Paul persecuting Jesus literally? Was Jesus there in the flesh and Paul is persecuting him? No. Who was Paul persecuting? Believers. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting believers. The clear inference there, we've been talking about it at Bible study as we've been reading through Luke, is the body of believers is Jesus. It's the body of Christ. And quite literally, when the body of Christ is persecuted, Jesus himself is persecuted. When the body of Christ is celebrated, Christ is celebrated. There is a directional relationship throughout the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. Throughout the Bible, Jesus says, as the Father and I are one, so you should be one. As the Father and I are holy, so you should be holy. And whenever the church is treated a certain way, that's how Jesus is treated. Now, is Jesus pure and perfect? Yeah, the easy one. Did Jesus call us to be like him? Did Jesus preach about forgiveness and reconciliation? A lot or a little? Is it a big deal or a little deal? Okay, so that's why I'm ending it on a sour note. If you're neglecting a big deal thing with Jesus, I want you to feel bad about it, okay? And it's not because I'm vengeful and nasty. I want you to feel bad about it the same way that Peter felt bad when Jesus was asking, do you love me? Because the inference there is if you love me then you're going to be good to my sheep right that's what he said each time tend my lambs feed my sheep tend my sheep we too who supposedly love jesus we need to be good to his sheep and we need to be good sheep amen